Once again to the book of Exodus, and we'll begin reading at chapter 25. We read that last time, but that forms the basis of what we'll be considering in chapters 35 and 36. So 25 and 35 and 36, those chapters of Exodus we want to turn to. And here in the last verses of or the last chapters of Exodus is a large portion dedicated to the, the contributions, the construction, and the consecration of the tabernacle. So we turn to that now. Exodus 25, the first nine verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram's skins dyed red, badger's skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So that's the verses in Exodus 25. Now go to Exodus 35. Just remind you that between these passages is the account of Israel's sin with the golden calf and God's mercy upon them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have existed in Exodus 35. But Exodus 35, we have here now the the implementation of the instructions that God gave to Moses, the actual construction of the tabernacle. We'll read verses 1 through 10. We'll skip a few verses, and I'll point that out to you presently. Exodus 35, 1, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together, And said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. You note the similarity between this and chapter 25. Fine linen and goat's hair, ram's skins dyed red, badger's skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, that is, of the high priest. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Then there's a list of what the artisans are to make, the tabernacle itself, its tent, its covering, and and all those things, and the ark as well. Skip down on the other side of that list, verse 20 through 22 And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. So they they were there, and they they thought about what he'd said. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, 
and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, for the holy and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And then there's further things that they offered. And I'm just skipping here so we have a theme. Verse 26 and through 29 is the next passage. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. In verses 30 to 35, and Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he's put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He's filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. Then just this, the first seven verses of chapter 36. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. There is a word, those last words, that every deacon probably would love to hear. The people bring too much. Every church would like to experience the people bring too much. It's not surprising, beloved, that the people at this time would bring too much. For the people of God were made for the tabernacle that was to be made. The people of God, they were the people of the Exodus, and they're brought out of Egypt to serve God in the wilderness and to serve God in the land of promise. 
And so this was it. Exodus led to tabernacle, led to God being with the people continually and in the generations. And so it's not surprising that they would give and give even too much, and they had to be restrained in their giving. Excuse me, there's something here, beloved, that is so powerful in this whole book of Exodus, the whole of the history of the people of God. The people of the Exodus brought out of Egypt's bondage were the people of the tabernacle. And there's something here, everything of Christ, but everything of Christ's people today. Are we people of the Exodus? Have we been delivered from sin? Then we're people of the tabernacle, of the place where God meets with us to worship, to serve, to encamp around him and to follow him wherever he goes. So I want to consider, and to consider this for our sake, as we part ways with Exodus, uh, formally in preaching and hearing, I want to consider the people of the tabernacle, that what they were here revealed to be some basic things, and then what this is for us. All scripture is given by inspiration, profitable for doctrine, reproof, and so on. What is it for us? What is this lesson here of the tabernacle for us today? May God bless us, people of the tabernacle. Want to learn three things, the gathering of that people, secondly, the giving of that people, and finally, the glory of that people, and that would be the glory of God who descends upon the place and blesses that place of meeting, even that place where the people of God were, tab- were, were, were encamped around. So we have the tabernacle. And last time we considered that this was God's house. In Exodus 25, that's why we revisited that. They were to build this place in verse 8 so that it would be a sanctuary for God that he might dwell with the people. That was the purpose of the sanctuary. Now God, of course, was with the people uh, all throughout the wilderness so far in the first years of their wandering and throughout their pilgrimage. But God chose to show himself in a sanctuary, a place, an actual place, and a tent of meeting, it was called, where God would meet with the people. And they would know his blessing as they camped around it, and all the tribes in order were around this camp, and there were millions strong of Israel, so it must have been a pretty big camp. The site of the tabernacle, that 150 by 70 foot long edifice and the tent of meeting in the place and all the offerings, that was the center of their existence, the center of their camp. It's, it was their worship in their life. And so this was uh, an, an amazing thing. And it symbolized the wonderful choice of God of this people because no other people was camped around that tabernacle, just God's people. No other people in all the world but the people of God who went by the name of Israel. You think of that. That's the truth of the gospel that we believed. There's one people of God, and not everybody's a people of God. They might be people. They might be originally made in the image of God and bear some outward vestige of that. 
But they're not sons of God. They're not born again. They're in Adam and they're re rebelling against God. Well, here you have the people of God. No better than anybody else by nature. By nature, they worship a golden calf. They dance around it. They want to do something else. They're just wanting to get this worship done. And then we can move on with life as if something's more important than worship of God. But there they are. And this special place is where God would meet with them. And there would be a pillar of cloud, children, that would descend upon the Ark of the Covenant, that box. And it would be God's throne with that place in the center of their worship, in that church building of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, later the temple. And then that cloud would lift up in and it would be a pillar of fire by night, we should say, first of all, but then it would lift up off the place whenever God wanted them to move. And they moved several times in the 40 years wandering, and so they would go wherever God went, and this describes the people of God and the God of the people. But the, the point is that God is with the people, and that's the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, sinners to himself on the cross. And God, when he came to the earth in Jesus, we know the story, don't we? His name was called Emmanuel. Had to be named by an angel to get it right, the identity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, not a God, the living God in the flesh. And great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifest in the flesh in Jesus Christ, in a tabernacle of a body. In fact, the Bible even says that when Jesus Christ became incarnate, we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only Father, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But he was in the flesh, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled, John 1, 14, or dwelt with us. Jesus is the tent. He's the tent. He's the tent of meeting. And when the disciples were following him, you can imagine, what did they know of this? What did they understand of this? When Jesus is observed to be this son of God and the glory of God in him, and yet he's so normal. He's so earthly. He doesn't have a form that we should desire him. He's not like an earthly king. He's certainly not an earthly philosopher. He doesn't draw the crowds except that they come and be healed by him, but when he speaks the truth of himself, they, they just go away. He's not popular like the other people, and increasingly as he speaks of a cross, they're getting nervous. Are the disciples around this tabernacle, around this meeting place of God, it's dangerous to be in the presence of the tabernacle. Dangerous, but, but safe, of course. As safe as anyone it could ever be from devils and from the flesh. For there, this place is a place of worship, a place of access to God. And Jesus Christ is that, of course. And Hebrews it reminds us that we are to draw near to God because the, the, there's a new and living way. That veil of the tabernacle, the temple, then, is, is torn from top to bottom. And there's access to heaven. To our Heavenly Father, as we plead the blood of Jesus that's shed for us. So that's, that's why it's such a beautiful time in Israel's history. And 
why we can and should profit very much from visiting this tabernacle history. Oh, and it's a place where the people truly gather. They're assigned a place. And the Levites are around and, and the house of Judah right outside the entrance of the, of the, the tabernacle, the only entrance on the east side. And there's this tribe here, Dan and this and Issachar and all of these, and they're all in the right place. They're camped, though. And so they're taught here in this camp the whole reason for their existence, to know God in their midst, to know God through the way of the priests who are designated the teachers, to know God and to have access to God in the sacrifices and all of these laws permeating the culture, permeating the, the religious sacred services is so important for them. It must be the center of their life as church today ought to be the center of our life and not just church in general but a local congregation, a place of meeting. That's how God reveals this to us in the Bible, not that this is where church is exhausted, that this is the only meeting place of God. Of course not. There's many churches from here to Timbuktu to Indiana and back again, all kinds of places where God is pleased to meet with his people. But here it was one place. That's the significance of it. This amazing place of God with them and they with God, and they're the chosen people, and they're the gathered people. And it's striking our catechism describes church in Lord's Day 21 as this is a people chosen. The only place election is mentioned in the catechism, mentioned in spades in the canons of Dort. That was the controversy, but in the catechism just once. But it's a church chosen and then gathered and defended and preserved. That's who we are the gathering place of the gathered, of the ones who are saved by sovereign grace, good name for a church, saved by the mercy of God alone, saved from our idolatries and our calves and our love of money and our love of things, saved from our anxieties even, which are sins, saved from our fears of men, saved from our own selves and from devils, and from the world that's not camped around it, but somehow infiltrates, as we'll see in the point of the giving. This people is gathered, therefore, to worship, to be a worshiping people. You know, that's what we are, beloved. If you're saved and you're brought out of the bondage of Egypt, and I know there's still much sin that remains, you're saved for one thing. Children, you're saved for one thing. Young people for one thing. Single people, married people, old gray-headed people. You're saved for one thing, to worship God. This is where Israel got its identity as this people, the prophet says, whom I formed for my praise. This is the people. This is their identity. Their God is the one identifying with them so that they are known as the people who testify as a God to be worshipped. And as they come into the land of Canaan, this is what they ought to testify to the Canaanites, that there's only one God to be worshipped in the promised land and in all the world, the God who's Jehovah, 
the covenant-keeping God, maker of heaven and earth and the provider of every good thing and the provider of storms, rain and sunshine and so on, and the giver of Jesus. We camp around it. We camp around that truth. And today, of course, as a local church and also in the communion of the saints and in the word of God, we camp around it. We read it. We think about it because this is what God teaches us by his spirit, not through a Levite, but through Christ and his spirit who have inspired this word. And then we move on when God moves on from place to place, maybe, but move on in our thinking. This movement of the people is significant here. They're camped around it, but only uh, for a little while in this place, and then they'll move. But wherever they move, it's going to be the center is God. This is why whenever I tell people who have ideas of moving off to Alaska or wherever else you want to move, or uh, is there a church there? Or when you're making your plans for a job and, you know, is there church there? Is there a place where you can meet with God? Is, is this going to be a place that's really good for your soul? Has the glory of God risen off the place now and gone to another place? Maybe Alaska, maybe I just speak of that as some wild place. Well, we move as God calls us to move. We move in our thinking, we move in our decisions, we break relationships, we remake relationships. We move, and the cross is the center, always the meeting place of God and sinners. We move, and there's this resurrection that we delight in as well, and, and I believe there's this significance as well that I hinted at in the last sermon that there's this tabernacle here, but there's going to be a temple, a more permanent place, and it could be, as commentators uh, Hint at that the tabernacle was Christ in his humiliation. The temple is Christ in his glory. Christ in this permanency is ascended to the right hand of God and where the people of God meet with one who was in the humble form of a tabernacle and a tent and had to put off the tent, as it were, of his earthly body. And now there's a temple and the people of God of the New Testament get to see both. The inglory of God, the ingloriousness of God, the humiliation of the Son of God, and the glory of the one who's risen, the completion of everything that the tabernacle and then the Old Testament temple poured or pointed to. This people is so different, and this is such a strange thing to the world. There's a people here that is a people at peace with God and God with them. And that, I believe, beloved, is why in the first verses of Exodus 35, and I'm moving to the second point here, the first word that Moses gave to the people who are going to build the tabernacle and be engaged for some seven months in the putting together of this thing, the first word is, don't work. That is, the Sabbath day is holy. These are the words of the Lord, which the Lord has commanded you to do, Exodus 35, 1. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. 
You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings in the Sabbath day. This is striking. And preceding, therefore, anything that we are even to do of worship, let alone building the tabernacle for worship, is rest in God. God reminds them, and it could be that he's reminding them with regard to all their work, that even though it's important, there's one thing more important than all your work, even all your church work, your ministerial work, your, your working on sermons, your, your witnessing and all of this stuff. It's resting in God. And this, on this special day. You ever think of that? Yeah, we, we might not really have the peace with God we have, and we might be in a tumult in our home, and what are we going to do about this or this or that? Work or problem child, whatever it is. You're not resting in God, trusting. So before the work that they're called to do, they're, they're called to do no work, that is, regularly on the Sabbath day, to be reminded that all of this work is of God and not of you, and there can be nothing accomplished unless the Lord builds this house as well as your houses. Nothing except the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain who builds it. Anyone listening to us here that is fidgeting around in life and flitting around as the birds, and they seem to have no purpose except to sing, which is a great gift. Break the dawn of the day, beloved. The birds beat you up, didn't they? They, they beat you to rise to sing the praise of God. But I believe they're resting in God more than we are. Learn that from the creatures, the little ones. Rest in God. And this is what the people of the Exodus do. The people of the cross, the people of the blood, the people of the merits of Christ, which they glory in, and which the preacher says you must glory in, and not your own. God's our peace. That's what these people needed to know in Israel. What a wretched group. What a wretched group. We say that of us, don't we? What a wounded souls who come limping into church, gasping for air. Let me come up from life. But God gives us the air and the song to sing and the peace. You know that? Peace? Do you? Peace with God. See, God was ready to destroy those people of the golden calf, Exodus 32, 33, 34. You can just, because we get these images of God, like a father who's angry, move aside, honey. You know, let this kid have it. And there's God condescending. Moses, you and your descendants, you could be my people, but not this people. Now, did God mean that? Of course he did. Did God mean that as a human? Of course not. He's God. It was a lesson for Moses 
and a lesson for all of us because Moses then stood in the gap as he should have to show the truth of God, mercies and justice. And so here we have God not striking down the people, not striking the tent that he'd planned to make as if now he's got to go to plan B, but building what he'd purposed to build all along, Exodus 25. Not wavering from the, or to the right or to the left, but steadfast in his determination, this will be my people, I will be their God. This will be the place. This will be the place. Not much. Tents of badger skins and ram skins and goat skins and all of that. But it will be the place that I dwell with them. Pointing to Jesus. The place who's a person. So we have peace. And the responses we give. We give. What is striking about this, beloved, is that throughout, throughout these passages we read, speaks of how the people gave. Let me just cite that. Chapter 35, verse 5. Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. And go to verse 21. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, moved, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle, of meeting for all its service for the, and for the holy garments. And then verse 22, they came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart. There it is, the heart, the willingness, the stir, being stirred in. And they brought their offerings to the Lord. Now, verse 26, and all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. Verse 29, the children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. God Love's a cheerful giver. It's a New Testament here. This is all New Testamentish. A heart is what God wants. Leave your offering at home if your heart is at home. If your heart is with me, bring whatever you got. Because I have your heart. That's what he's saying. Does he have your heart, beloved? Does he have my heart? Does he have your will? Does God? Does he have your cooperation, which is not some kind of agreement with stipulations or a prenup? Does he have your heart? You, your body, your soul, your time, your leisure, your work, he have you. This is what is being taught here. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. That's what the New Testament says. It's all about this voluntary giving. This from the heart giving 
to show that there's a people here who knows the love of God and who themselves are now moved by love. As the Apostle says, we are moved by love. We are persuaded by an irresistible force called love, not a machine-like force, but a, a love that stirs in us to love God back and to love what he loves. And so that according to the strict words of God, there will be built this thing by us. And the Spirit of God is working in Bezalel and Aholiab and all the others who have this willing heart. And they give abundantly. They give until the officials of the church have to say, now you've got to stop here. We don't have enough room. We can't store it all. We give. We give proportionately to what everyone has to give. We give, so I have this talent. I'm going to give this resource, this technical skill uh, to make uh, a quilt or to, make, to, to bring the spices together. I'm like a cook, something like that. Or we give money, we give gold and silver, we give jewels and we will melt them down and so on so that there was material goods given and technical skills. And these were the goods and services that are necessary for any business. These were used of God, employed of God, so that there could be this business called true religion in the earth, beginning at the tabernacle. And gold and silver and precious stones and animal skins and spices and ointments and fine cloth for everything. New Testament, we give voluntarily, we give, there's a free will offering, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and, and there's this wonderful giving, because we've been given unto. This is one of the few times that in the Old Testament, there's voluntary giving, Volunt giving that was whoever wants, give. Striking. The rest of the New Testament is about laws of giving. You know, the laws, the laws of the tithe. Give 10% right off the top of whatever you take in from your crops or whatever. And if you can't, you know, bring it all the way to Jerusalem, exchange it for some kind of money of worth and bring that to the priests. And the reason was for the service of the gospel in the tabernacle, the Levites, they would live off the 10%. There was a half shekel tax that everybody had to pay, no matter if you were rich or poor. Strikingly, there was also another tenth, a second tithe, the Jews called it, so that the Old Testament people were called to give 20%, not 10%. Then even there was another law of tithe that every three years they were to give a tenth of their crops or of their substance increase so that it amounted to 23%, not just 10%. And then it was told when they would have a king, they would have to give him 10%, a tithe. So 33% of this theocratic nation was going to be required of them. This is all the free will offerings, but then there would be mandated laws, laws that are mandates, by God for the running of this whole nation and the commitment of the people. Well, beloved, that's why I believe that the tithing that is prescribed in the Old Testament is not necessary for today. 
because we don't have in the New Testament any law for giving. The fulfillment, in fact, is in Jesus who fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. People will say today that tithing ought to be, and maybe that's a good idea even, are a little bit confused as to what the tithing is because they're saying 10%. It was 23%. And they don't say that. The people would kind of balk at that. But they're missing. What is the real purpose of offering? You know what the real purpose of our offering is? It's to point to Jesus. Jesus, who himself is the offering to God. We're pointing to Jesus, not to ourselves. Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. He's the tithe, as it were, but it wasn't just 10% of himself. He gave himself entirely. And so if we want to try to measure out how much we should give, we're missing the point. In fact, we're detracting from what God himself gave. God himself has given more than a tithe to himself. And for the sake of the people, he's given Jesus his son. And when we give then, it's we give ourselves. And that's how the New Testament describes what you should give. You want to know what you should give? Turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a free will offering to God. This is your reasonable, logikos, word-like, Christ-centered service. God, the tabernacling God, the templing God, has visited us in Jesus Christ. New Testament giving is far beyond what was prescribed for an Old Testament childlike people. That's how they're described in the Bible. It's far beyond that. The maturity that is the privilege of the New Testament people of God is Christ is all. Christ is my all. God is all in all in him and therefore have me, oh God. Take me, body and soul. And the Holy Spirit works in us and our name might not be Bezalel or Holiab, but our name is Son of Israel. Now, beloved, this is uh, what we're all about here, the people of the tabernacle. We're gathered by God's grace around the camp, around Jesus, to give. And it's not about measuring out how much to give, because then we're forgetting the infinite Worth of God's own love. That's immeasurable. So now, how much can you give? There is required giving, we should know. And just one or two more details, and then we go to the final point. It's all free. We give freely. And those who don't, by the way, did you notice that? God said, okay, now, everyone who's a willing heart, they give. But what about the other people? And there were other people in the camp of Israel. There was a mixed multitude at this time. And some commentators find the source of all Israel's problems in that mixed multitude 
they would have been Egyptians and other people who came along for the ride to join the people of God who, whose God worked miracles through Moses. So they wanted the good stuff of God, but not the good God of the stuff. So there they were. wonder, did they have a willing heart? The Bible leaves room here at every point for people that didn't have a willing heart. They were not willing. God didn't want their offering. God doesn't want people to come to church who are not willing in the day of power. He doesn't want hypocrisy. This is the time of the Pharisees, the, the, the exact thing that happened there. They were giving to be seen of men. God said, no. Give yourself, and I don't care if anybody sees you or not. And if you're poor, well, be like that widow who gave just a little bit, and God was pleased with her. That's all she had. But she was telling everybody that God is sufficient for me. I have him. He has me. And she was, and we are, knowing that our names are on the breastplate of the high priest of our salvation. He loves us so much. That's why we give to him. But as I said, the New Testament giving is not all voluntary. It's, there's a mandate. You know that? First of all, we're to give to the poor. You know that throughout the New Testament. Verses I could allude to, cite. Give to the poor. And if you don't give to the poor, your religion is vain, James says, chapters 1 and 2. Rich, give to the poor. Um, us normal people, give to the poor. Give to the needy. Give to those. And then, of course, give to the ministry of the gospel. Paul cites that in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, that's an Old Testament law, and it is, is, it, that pertains to today because the ministry of the gospel is the way that God teaches and promotes the truth of the tabernacle, temple, Jesus. But I want to say one thing. Here's what I want from you, me want from you. I want a million dollars from every one of you. Can you give that? And here's what I equate to a million dollars. A smile, a handshake, and a thanks for bringing the word. That's it. That's a million dollars. I'm a rich man. I thank God for your thanks, your encouragement. We sinful men need that. Moses needed that. New Testament ministers need that. That's our wealth. Your heart, the heart of God. And that's for glory, the glory of God. As we read last time in Exodus 40, the end of that is God coming to the tabernacle and visiting the place. The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses himself couldn't go there because the glory of the Lord was filling the tabernacle and, and it was an amazing thing. But there is this glory and there's glory for congregations. We should know that. In this way, 
of our responding well. Not that anything depends on us. You want to see the glory of God in this congregation, the glory of love, the glory of peace, the glory of reconciliation, the glory of every single one of us in the communion of saints, giving whatever you have to the cause of Christ, whatever time, whatever skill, whatever money, whatever position. You want to see the glory of God in this church, and as we say, the engine running at all pistons, you want to see progress, you want to see growth God's way, then remember the response, don't rob your God, give to God. Will a man rob God? Malachi 3, yet you've robbed me. This is a congregation that went south. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, they're giving. You are cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. God says, now, stop your robbing, stop your stinginess, stop your being closed in on yourself, stop being so selfish and pride and whatever, stop thinking there's grass that's greener on the other side, and give to me, giving to the cause of Christ. And if you do this, and if you actually test me, that's the word there, try me now in this, Malachi 3.10. The one place where God says you can tempt me, test me, to see if I'm going to provide for you if you give even your whole bank account, your whole life to me. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. The giving congregation takes the risk of investing everything in Jesus Christ. We're not hedge fund specialists or mutual fund safe investors as Christians. The safety is in God who says now give you uh, give me my all. I'm yours, you're mine, and I want you to show off just how much I can bless you. Know that, beloved. That's the glory of the Lord, the Sovereign Grace Church, a people that hears the word and that is so, so thankful. And maybe the deacons will have to say enough, but I don't think so, because God will say, keep on keeping on, and you will be blessed, and I will fill this place with my presence. Amen. We pray, Lord, your blessing that we can respond very humbly to the word we've heard and with thankfulness. For the first and the last word, God in heaven, from Genesis to Revelation, from tabernacle to Jesus, is grace. Oh, God, May we love your grace, your free favor, your abundance that you have given of your Son, your Spirit, and your truth. And here we are. Fill us, Lord. May we be tabernacles and temples of meeting. Meet with us in our heart. Meet with us in our gatherings. Meet with us in our conversation. 
Give us to pray and to be glad for the way into the Holy of Holies, the blood of the Lamb. Forgive our many sins of preaching and hearing. Blot them out. That's what the tabernacle's all about. And your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.